Hello, dear listener, and welcome to the Neighbors Church podcast and our Sunday session. Had some more technical difficulties this last Sunday, but we think that this particular series, our value series, and particularly the details that we're digging into on our third value, the Spirit, are so important for our community, for those that are traveling, for those that are listening in, uh, not able to make the Sunday gathering, that we wanted to make sure that you got this session. So I am re-recording it. Let's pray. Father, bless this time. Bless this listener. Bless us with the presence of your Spirit as we worship you, as we yield ourselves to who you are and the work you want to accomplish in our lives. We exalt you now. Thank you for making us one in the Trinity, one with you, our God, and one with each other. In Jesus' name, amen. We take our topic from Genesis 1 and Revelation 21. I'll read the texts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is the word of the Lord. So as I said, we're a few weeks into our fall series uh, where we're revisiting and reestablishing our core values as a community. If you haven't listened to the previous sessions, I'd really encourage you to listen to the first two sessions on simplicity and stillness. As those two practices, those two values create a platform or a place for us to host the presence of God himself, the Holy Spirit. And we value the Spirit for a number of reasons, but according to St. Paul, he would say it's actually impossible to be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. He said in the book of Romans, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. We need to consider that for a moment as contemporary, late Western, modern Christians, very intellectual, very rational, very driven from the mind. Paul warns the community in Rome, we can call ourselves Christian, but without the Spirit, we are not truly Christian. And so for the next seven sessions, we're devoting uh, this, this time to our third value, this exploration of who the Holy Spirit is. And this isn't to diminish the Father and the Son in the Godhead, in the in the Trinity. This is to ensure that the Spirit has his proper place in our worship, in our adoration, in our reliance, and in our dependence on God as he guides us. So who is he? Who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? How do we relate to him? How do we live in his power? Today, for this session, we're going to focus on one singular theme. The Holy Spirit is the God who dwells and orders. He is the God who dwells among his people and brings order to the disorder of our personal lives and all of creation. Now this morning we're using a form of reading called biblical theology, where we're tracing a theme through the entirety of scripture. 
We're going to cover huge swaths of the Bible, tracing this theme of dwelling and ordering through the overarching story from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end. So buckle up. Here we go. It's going to be fun. Again, the passage we started with, Genesis chapter 1, the God who dwells and orders. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. From the very opening lines of the Bible, at the dawn of creation, the Holy Spirit was and is present. Our English text says that the earth was formless and empty. Some of your translations will try to translate those words, the earth was without form and void, or the earth was empty and shapeless, which is kind of weird if you think about it very long. How could the earth exist but she but, but be shapeless? How could the earth be a thing but be, form, but be formless, be void? That doesn't make any sense. So our minds, trained by the Big Bang Theory, and with images of the cosmos scattered throughout our imagination, we envisage this primordial cosmic soup of sorts. There's darkness covering a sea of chemicals ready to be mixed and matched to bring about creation. And I suppose, in one sense, that may be exactly what happened. The text is not a scientific text. It's not trying to explain the origins of the universe in scientific terms. What the text is emphasizing is that in the beginning... Creation was chaotic. It was, it was disordered. Uh, our English translations, they're trying to capture a dense set of Hebrew words. Tohu vabohu, it's kind of fun to say. Tohu vabohu. One Hebrew scholar, John Salehammer, he translates these words in this way. The earth was wild and waste. In other words, the earth was a wilderness, an uninhabitable place. It was un cultivated. And that wilderness theme carries all the way through the rest of the Bible. It's a dangerous place. It's a place that is hard for humans to exist in. It's a place of punishment. And so the earth was wild and waste, tovu vabohu, uncultivated, uninhabitable. And that's the big idea. The beginning of creation was uninhabitable by humans, and that was not good. And so we see the Holy Spirit there hovering As the Holy Spirit hovers, God's voice speaks. And by God's word, in synchronicity with the Holy Spirit, as God's word goes forth, light overcomes darkness, land and sea are organized, heaven and earth are ordered into their proper places, animals and plant life are put in their proper places, and at the pinnacle of this ordering of chaos, God makes image bearers humans. He literally breathes his spirit, ruach in the Hebrew. He breathes his spirit into them, animating them. And so the creation account is the story of God making a place for humans and himself to dwell together. And what we need to note here at the beginning of the Bible is that God organized creation, made it habitable for humans by both his Holy Spirit and his word, both his spirit and his word organized and ordered the disorder. This is important to know because from the beginning, God is always ordering creation and God throughout the narratives of the Bible and throughout history orders his world by both his voice or his word, his will, his revealed will, and his Holy Spirit. 
And as we're going to see for you and I in our personal souls and right now in the modern moment that we exist in, God seeks to order the chaos by both his word and the Holy Spirit. Now in Genesis, we learn that God intended to partner with the humans. He wanted humans to partner with his power, according to his word, to go into creation and bring further order to the disorder. We read in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 1, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. I don't know if you caught it as you're listening, but verse 28 says, fill the earth and subdue it, subdue it. That word subdue in verse 28 is actually a war word in the rest of the Bible. And so animated by the spirit and in obedience to God's word, the humans were to partner with him and to go out in war with the chaos. They were to overcome it. They were to subdue it. The language in Genesis 1 is they were to be fruitful, fill the earth with God's order, bringing his goodness and his truth and beauty into all of creation from the epicenter of the garden. Now, I know all the Awana kids and the Bible kids raised in the church are saying, wait a second, I don't understand. Wasn't everything perfect in the beginning? Wasn't everything just right? The garden was a perfect place with no sin. Um, No, actually, we know that something was wrong, even in the very beginning, because there's already a talking snake, which is weird, in the garden, and we discovered that this talking snake is malevolent. He's evil. He's a deceiver. This talking serpent is a chaos creator. This serpent is a disorderer. And we know how the rest of the story goes by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3. Based on the chaos creator's lies based on the serpent's deceptions, Adam and Eve, the first humans, rather than partnering with God and his word and his power, rebel against God and they end up separated from him. Rather than order, humans brought disorder and sin destroyed God's dwelling place with humans. War, murders, sexual confusion, power plays, political upheavals, oppressive systems, injustices, Impatience, lust, outbursts of anger, envy, depression, anxiety, loneliness. These are the marks of a disordered interior life of the soul. And they are the marks of a creation still in chaos. The rest of the Bible is the story of God relentlessly making new places on earth to repartner with his chosen people by dwelling among them and ordering their ways according to his word. Follow the theme carefully. As we travel through the story, now we're going to jump way ahead. God chooses different humans to be new Adams of sorts. There's Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons. These humans are all God's uniquely chosen people, and they were to be animated by God's presence and to obey his word. And like Adam and Eve, the chaos crusher deceived them, and they failed. Now, a key moment in this story comes after Moses has delivered God's people from Egypt. Moses is given the blueprints for the tabernacle and the law, the tabernacle and the law. This is important because this is a very specific new Garden of Eden moment. As you're plowing your way through the book of Exodus, 
Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, just grinding it out, asking what in the world do these curtains and the colors purple and blue and the silver loops and these extensive descriptions, what do they have to do with my life on Monday morning? Dear friend, everything. Because the language describing the tabernacle is actually garden language. And the symbols in the tabernacle, they are all reflections of the garden. The tabernacle was to be a new place where God and humans could dwell together. And where did they dwell together? In the wilderness, in the wilds, in the dangerous and uncultivated places. The law that was given to Moses, 10 commandments and the 613 commandments following that, the law was a repeat of God's voice. The law was God's word. His, his word that would bring order to the chaos by teaching the people to love God with all of their being and to love their neighbors as themselves. Tabernacle and law, a new garden place, dwelling presence and his word. And so as new garden humans, the ancient Hebrews were to walk in God's presence and obey his word in the midst of the chaos of unbelieving humans around them for the sake of bringing order to the disorder. Now, there's a tragedy in the story, as is always the case. Excuse me. At the completion of the tabernacle, we read, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, at this moment, it should have been an amazing moment of celebration. A new garden place had been built where God's presence could dwell with humans again. But instead, as the fire comes, as the glory comes, as the cloud fills the tabernacle, Moses could not enter. We initially read that as, wow, God's glory is so powerful and beautiful, Moses couldn't enter. As the story unfolds, what we realize is that's a tragedy. That is not a good thing. Because just like Adam and Eve and all who followed, Moses included, the Hebrews did not obey God's word from their heart. And so the separation remained. The rift and the chaos and the disorder that started in the original garden was not going to be fully healed by this new garden of tabernacle and law. We jump ahead now to the days of the kings where nothing has changed. In the days of Solomon, we have a mirror episode to the days of Moses from tabernacle to temple. Israel had constructed a temple to replace the tabernacle. And this was another new garden moment. It was another garden location where God was seeking to repartner with his humans to dwell together with them. But just like Moses, the humans couldn't enter in and be in God's presence. We read in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. It's another tragedy. And so as we make our way through the narratives of the Old Testament— What we see is that there are occasional moments with certain people in the power of God's spirit, and they bring temporary order to the disorder of human chaos. They bring partial obedience to God's word, but it is always incomplete. A tension and a longing builds through the stories of the Old Testament. How will the Holy Spirit, who dwells and orders, bring this chaos under control? Who? 
which humans will finally be able to be in his presence again, who will perfectly obey his word. And the prophets answered, the wild-eyed, crazy prophets, they answered in this way. They promised throughout the Old Testament narratives that one day someone would come who would not fail. This human would be a new and a perfect Adam, a perfect Moses, a true King David. This human would be perfectly empowered and anointed by the Holy Spirit and perfectly obedient to God's word. And so the ancient Hebrews, as they read their scrolls, longed for and looked for the one they called Mashiach, Messiah, the chaos crusher, the great reorderer who would come by spirit and by word and do what no other human could have ever done. At the beginning of Luke, a young woman is surprised by an angel and she's told, you're going to give birth to a son, even though she was a virgin. Of course, she asks, how can this be? And the angel answered, Luke 135, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, hovering again. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And once again, just as we saw in the Genesis 1 account, the Spirit hovered over the darkness, the darkness of Mary's womb. And Jesus, the God who dwelt among us in human flesh, was born. And just as the prophets had promised, Jesus lived in partnership with his Father, bringing order to the chaos. Through Isaiah, we hear how he did what he did. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord, Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Jesus was the Messiah, the Mashiach. Jesus was the anointed one, which literally means the one drenched in, poured over in the spirit, the one upon whom the spirit rested perfectly. As we listen to the teachings of Jesus, as we read his teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, we are literally hearing God's word and God's word reorders the relationships between humans and God and between humans and each other. As we watch the miracles of Jesus, we are watching the chaos crusher heal the disordered bodies of physical disease. As we watch Jesus's life, his presence overcomes the chaos of anxiety and fear and the lies of shame and the burdens of guilt. Jesus's way was the way of the garden as the father had always intended it to be for all humans. Except this second Adam, this perfect Adam, Jesus, the Messiah, did not succumb to the lies of the snake in the wilderness. He crushed the snake's head by absorbing its bite into his body through his death in our place on the cross. And one key theme to not miss with the life of Jesus, John said of him in chapter one of his gospel, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word dwell is literally translated tabernacle. And so Jesus, the word of God, anointed by the spirit of God, was the new garden place, the true tabernacle, the true temple where humans and God could dwell together again. And that brings the story, dear listener, to you and to I and to our part in this unfolding cosmic drama. Because as the promise from the prophets was that a Messiah would come who would crush the chaos creator. 
This Messiah, the prophets promised, would also create a new garden people. And this new garden people, his followers, would be animated by the Holy Spirit, would be anointed by the Holy Spirit. They would do as the Messiah had done in the power of the Spirit in obedience to God's word. Joel saw a great outpouring of God's presence, Joel chapter 2, 28, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. God through Ezekiel said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws." The promise of a new spirit internally indwelling humans that we might obey his law, word and spirit, order in the disorder. Jesus's life, death, and resurrection inaugurated this new creation, this new garden reality in human hearts. And it was in hearts that would yield their whole being to him in faith and in obedience. And just as God had sent Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, Jesus sent his people to make disciples or to order human hearts in his teachings and in his name by his power. In John chapter 20, Jesus did this. Again, Jesus said to his disciples, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It's the same image of the father breathing life into Adam and Eve. And now Jesus, God among us, the true tabernacle, breathes upon his people saying, receive the Holy Spirit and sends us to bear fruit, to multiply, to crush chaos. He had told his disciples prior to his ascension to wait for power to come upon them. And so the disciples gathered there in the book of Acts in an upper room where they were praying, 120 of them. And what we see is when the Spirit came, the Spirit hovered over the first Christians. And as He hovered over them and came upon them, the Word of God came alive through them, ordering, bringing order to every tribe, tongue, and nation miraculously in their own languages. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting very much like the tabernacle and temple scenes where the glory of the Lord filled the temple. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, this pillar of fire, this pillar of glory. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, this is incredible. Where Adam and Eve had failed, where Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons had failed, where all humans had failed, Jesus had succeeded. And now he was pouring out upon his people his presence and his power to obey his word. And where Moses and Solomon and the priests could not enter into the tabernacle and the temple because of God's presence, now those same pillars of fire because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, those same pillars of fire and cloud and glory came to rest upon the people themselves. What we learn from the overarching narrative is that humans obeying Jesus's word through the power of the spirit are the new dwelling place of God. We are the new tabernacles. We are the new temples. God's dwelling place is among us in our midst and in our hearts. St. Paul took this literally telling the Corinthians, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and then God's spirit dwells in your midst. 
if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. By the way, all that language there is plural use, not singular use. Yes, the Holy Spirit indwells us. We are the new temple individually of the Holy Spirit, but more importantly, we together as the church are the temple of the Holy Spirit where these pillars of cloud and fire and glory come upon us and we have intimate communion with our Father once again. This is who we are today as Christians. We, the church, we are the dwelling place for God's presence. And we are commissioned to bring order to the disorder of sin and brokenness through obedience to his word. A church like neighbors and literally hundreds of thousands of other churches across the globe are little mini Garden of Eden places where God's presence dwells and his word brings order to human souls and to society. And so at the end of the story, as we read at the very beginning of this teaching, when Jesus literally returns to finalize his reign over creation, we read, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Eternity, that is, heaven finally come to earth, will be perfect order in creation. All chaos will be completely crushed, and we will be co-ruling alongside King Jesus as he has established his reign in all the universe. And the heights of our joy, what will make heaven on earth heavenly, is that God will dwell among all of us, among all people groups for all of eternity in perfect intimacy forever. I can't wait. So as we wrap this up, how do you and I as Christians, how can we concretely know that the Spirit is dwelling among us? How can we concretely today assess and measure, is the Holy Spirit part of my life? As St. Paul said, if you have not the Spirit of Christ, you are not Christ's. How today might we know that we are Christ's and that his Spirit is ordering our lives? Two key things. Number one, we know this objectively by faith. And number two, we know this subjectively by experience. Objectively by faith. And number two, subjectively by experience. Let's talk about objective faith in the works of God. When we become Christians, uh, in our traditions, there's a long history of raising your hand and praying a certain prayer, um, which we don't really find in the New Testament. To become a Christian is to devote the whole of your being to Jesus in a lifelong pursuit of apprenticing ourselves in his ways. It's more than a decision and it's more than a hand raised. This is important because it's when we commit our whole existence, when we model our entire life after Jesus's life, then in those moments and moment by moment throughout our entire life, there are a whole host of miracles that happen regardless of what we feel, think, or even say. We are, as apprentices of Jesus, forgiven. We are adopted completely as God's children. We are part of his family. We are brothers and sisters. He is our great brother. God is our father. We are granted an eternal inheritance where moth nor rust will never destroy. We are unified with Christ in the eternal love of the Trinity. We are brought into the dance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. 
Paul tells us in Ephesians that the moment we commit our lives to Christ, we are seated in the heavenly realms with him. Quite a mystery. We conquer all demonic powers and devices against us. And we begin to co-rule alongside him in the present moment until he comes to establish his full reign. Now, as a uh, modern analytical Christian, I recognize that this is hard to grasp. This is what the New Testament reveals about those who will say, I trust you, Jesus. The things that I just listed and a million other miracles, these are objective, concrete, unconquerable, unchanging realities for the person who have said, I give you my life, Jesus. This breath, this moment, this day, and tomorrow I do the same. These truths of forgiveness and adoption and inheritances and dwelling with the Trinity and conquering demonic powers and co-ruling alongside Jesus, they are concrete, unchanging realities outside of ourselves. Objective, that's what that means. Outside of ourselves. Whatever we may feel or think or whatever our internal body may be experiencing, these things are true. They are, like, they are what I like to call real reality. And so God's word orders our minds and our souls from the disorder of sin and brokenness as we, by faith, believe these things, as we learn to obey these truest truths, these ultimate realities. The radical nature of the work of the Holy Spirit and God's word in concert is that for the Christian, even when our internal, emotional, and felt experiences don't align with what God says about us. His word is our objective, truest truth. And what he says is our ultimate reality. And we need only trust. And friends, trust is a choice. We may not have all the answers, but I choose today to bring to him even my questions and my doubts. And I say, Father, according to the orders of your word, I trust in the work that you have accomplished through Jesus's life. And I rest, I receive what you have done. Even though we tell ourselves false stories and narratives that just create chaos and disorder in our internal being, we practice daily reordering our lives, reordering our hearts and minds and souls and bodies according to God's word in the spirit through this act of faith. And faith is really just surrendering. Whether we feel it or not, it is surrendering to what God says about us, that his love is unwavering towards us, that he has adopted us, that we are his, that we are indeed indwelt by him through the Holy Spirit, because he has promised us these truths, these truest truths that we now abide by. And so for objective faith in these realities to grow, there are things that we do on our part. Number one, good old school reading through our Bibles. It's good for us to plow through Exodus through Deuteronomy and read about curtains and silver loops and silver bowls and bronze shields and all the like, because those things have to do with our lives as new tabernacle people. Reading our Bibles, we learn to, as we labor, to form our lives according to the objective truths of God's scripture, we also must submit ourselves to what we call the sweet counsel of the church. That is, we sit in community groups, we come to Sunday mornings, we open ourselves to the community around us to speak objective truths into our lives as we support one another, as we are one with one another. And at a church like Neighbors, we in a very intentional and regimented way 
utilize practices, the practices of scripture memorization and meditation, Lectio Divina, Sabbath, silence, solitude, and prayer. These embodied practices ingrain these truest truths and these ultimate realities into the neurochemistry of our nervous systems and into our souls. It's not all emotionless, objective faith, though. The Holy Spirit interacts with our emotions, with our psychologies, with our bodies. And so we can know that God is reordering our lives by our subjective experience. Now, <clears throat> this, is, this is a vast topic, the subjective experiences that are marks of God's Spirit. There are, there are countless combinations and millions of emotions and embodied experiences that the Holy Spirit is interacting with to guide us, impressions, imaginations, moments, senses, peace that surpasses understanding, burdens, convictions. All of these things are ways in which God the Holy Spirit is interacting with our emotions, bodies, and psychologies. We don't have time to cover all of them. Over the lifetime of our church, we'll address these things. But I do think there are two really important ones that we might consider as we close up this session two embodied experiences that subjectively remind us that we are indeed being reordered by the Spirit and God's Word. And they are conviction and comfort. (laughs) Conviction and comfort. Briefly, conviction. Conviction is an old Bible idea that I personally think needs reviving in the modern Christian community. Conviction. Conviction can have a dual meaning. It can mean, oh man, I feel so guilty. I feel convicted because I've, I've done wrong. But also, our English word conviction can have this idea of having a a firm conviction, an unwavering fidelity to a truth or to a belief or to a value or to a, a principle. So the Greek word there is, it's all of that and more. A conviction, oh, I feel bad in my body about what I did. A conviction, oh, I feel certain and committed to this principle, to this truth, to this belief. Conviction accompanies God's work by his spirit through his word in reordering our lives and society. Paul told the church in Thessalonica that he was certain God had chosen them, was indwelling them and ordering their souls because, first Thessalonians, we know brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. <laughs> Paul's teaching as he shared the gospel, the good news of Jesus's life, death, burial, and resurrection, and all that that entails in our behavior after belief. Paul's teaching brought conviction. It brought an innate sense, embodied sense of guilt over wrongdoing against God and other humans. It birthed a conviction and a longing for repentance and a hunger for transformation and a desire for holiness. Conviction, embodied conviction, accompanied God's word. And so conviction, friend, is the Holy Spirit ordering our disordered desires and behaviors. And it's actually a very good thing. In our therapized culture, and I'm a big fan of therapy. I have a therapist. I see my therapist often. I'm glad to talk with him about my life. But conviction is not something that's supposed to be processed and healed in therapy as if it's a bad thing. Conviction is actually leading us to a rightly ordered life. Conviction is not to be numbed out or distracted from. It's actually to be focused on and responded to because conviction is the good shepherd. Conviction is the shepherd that is leading us to the transforming still waters and green pastures of God's garden ideals and right ordering of human life. 
He loves us in our wrong and he convicts us to draw us to right living before him for our flourishing. And as we do this, as we're guided by conviction, oh, I've done wrong, conviction, oh, I believe, I am stable, I am unwavering in my fidelity to Jesus and his love and his ability to heal me, the Spirit also, in embodied ways, in subjective ways, comforts his people. Jesus called the Holy Spirit the parakletos. That's a super dense word as well, but my favorite translation of it is the comforter, the Holy Spirit, who is the comforter. Paul said to the Romans that, the Spirit, Romans chapter 8, verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And so as we are on our journey with the Spirit and the Word and conviction comes, there are also sweet seasons where God's presence is so thick, we just have this innate sense, an embodied sense, that we are loved. We become calm. We become people of peace, a peace that surpasses understanding, as Paul called it in the book of Philippians. And here Paul tells us in Romans that the Holy Spirit will give us sweet seasons where we are assured, we are assured in our emotional, psychological makeup that we are adopted, that we are God's children, that we are inheritors of the kingdom. Now, there will be, as the mystics have taught us and the contemplatives have taught us, very long seasons very sacred seasons where it feels like the embodied expressions of God's presence are gone. We're just dry as dust. There's no assurance. For some seasons, there's no conviction. Everything just feels flat. Those are sacred seasons where God is training us. God is teaching us to live by that objective faith. Then there will be other seasons where there will be great outpouring. And as we make our way through the rest of this series, we will see that there are seasons where there are manifestations of God's Spirit that are very potent and very powerful. In our time now as we close, I would encourage you to objectively by faith embrace what the Spirit and the Word have given to you already, dear saint of God. You are a saint. Surrender to that truth today. And then ask the Holy Spirit to come and affirm and confirm by conviction and by comfort his love for you, his care for you, that he might create in you a sense of forgiveness, a sense of peace, a sense of boldness as you go about your day today. It's the objective truths by faith that give us the realist reality that we live into, and it's the subjective experiences that guide and reorder our lives according to Scripture. Shalom, friends.